Thank you, Kevin. It's good to see you here this morning. I am very thankful to be here. It's a great privilege to serve here as your pastor. Uh, we're continuing through the book of 1 Corinthians. One I hope is a great challenge to you because it is a great challenge to me. Um, we do have copies of the book of 1 Corinthians that we hope you are going through together with us. And so if you would like a copy of that book, uh, our ushers have them just raise your hand and they can bring you a copy of the book of 1 Corinthians. And today we've come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this is a section that we began, beginning with chapter 8, which asks the question, about eating food that had been offered to idols. And today we are coming to the near of the end of that chapter and Elder Gordon will help us finish that next week. Uh, but as we come to the Lord in his word, let's also come to him in prayer. Father God, we thank you for what you've given us in your word. We thank you for the great and mighty truths that are revealed to us in scripture. And Lord, we need these truths in our lives, and yet we are so weak, so unable to see and then to abide by what you've given us in your word. And yet living in this world as we do today, we recognize we need your truth. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue to grow in our understanding and knowledge of what you've given that we might learn to live more faithfully to you so that you might take joy and pleasure in the service of those whom you've called to be your family. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> I've found what we've been going through here in chapter eight through 10 and all of the book of Corinthians enormously challenging, both personally and as we think about our church as we live in a community together. And I hope that you likewise are finding these passages a great challenge. And let me just review what we've seen thus far in this section and to remind you of why we need to take these words of Paul through his words so seriously. And part of how we can see how incredibly important what Paul has written here, how we can see the importance of that, is in that there is a sense in which when we look at this, doesn't it seem as though Paul is blowing a molehill up into a mountain? Because what has he done? He, he's been asked this question, is it all right to eat the food that has been offered to idols? And if you'll remember the situation, it's that these pagan temples received offerings from different people, and then they would take the sacrifices, the meat from the sacrifices, and then sell them. And because they basically obtained it freely, they could sell it at a fairly cheap price. And so in a sense, it was like a discount grocery store. And so is it okay to shop at Aldi's would be one way perhaps to think of it. 
And Paul takes this question of this meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And the first thing that he goes to in answering that question is, are you saved? And you're thinking, look, all I've done is ask, is shop at Aldi's. And you're saying, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know, as he ought to know. And if you remember, as we looked at that chapter, the idea of knowing someone and being known by someone is incredibly significant. Because those whom God knows and who know God are part of his family. But if God does not know you, you're cast out into outer darkness. And so Paul has taken this question about eating food that is purchased at a discount from these pagan temples and turned it into an issue of salvation. And we see Paul continually going back to this idea in chapter 9. You can see that he says in verse 27, I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. And so we see that there's no question that Paul is taking this small issue of eating the meat sacrificed to idols and taking it very seriously. In our combined service last week, we were looking at both a positive and a negative in terms of how to look at this question. And on the negative side, there is this idea. We can disqualify ourselves from the blessing of God. We can live in such a way in which we show that we are not a part of God's family and that we do not desire to be a part of God's family. And yet, this cannot be enough. It cannot be enough because if we are living in a way in which we are simply doing something, following laws or rules, that we do not desire to follow in order to get something else that we want, then we are actually still simply living in the way of idolatry, right? And so you think about how does idolatry work? You go to the temple and you bring a sacrifice, an offering to that idol. And in making that sacrifice, you're hoping to obtain something from the God to whom it's been offered, something that you desire. And so if you go temple of Poseidon. You're giving him an offering and hoping that you can get a safe sea voyage. Or if you go to the temple of Aphrodite, you're hoping that she will give you fortune in a romantic relationship. If you go to the temple of Diana, you perhaps are asking for wisdom in order to make an important decision. And where the difference comes, in part, is why we follow, why we desire to do what God has called us to do. And if we're doing what we don't desire to do in order to get something we desire, we're following that old paradigm. And yet, as we were looking at chapter 9, one of the things we saw 
is that Paul desired to boast in the gospel. And you see that section in chapter 9, verses 15 through 18. And Paul says here, I am giving up my rights in order that I might boast in the gospel. And there is a desire that Paul has to honor God, to go above and beyond his duties, to sacrifice and give up his rights in order to honor God. And another aspect in which our worship of God is different than the worship that is given to idols is simply this. When we go to the pagan temples and we're offering something, we want control, right? Because there's something that we desire, we don't yet have it, and that is the reason that we have gone to these pagan temples. And in offering our sacrifices, we are hoping that the gods would give us something that we do not yet have. And yet, what is it that we have in Christianity? In the Christian faith, God has already come through for us. Do you see that? Even in the Old Testament, all the sacrifices that the Jews had offered to God were anticipation and pointing to a promise that God had made that would come to fulfillment. And so they were already saved because God had promised to save them and in the fullness of time would send Jesus Christ. And so the salvation that you and I need has already been accomplished. And so when you've already, in a sense, received the goods, there's no need to pay for them. Now, one of the ways that our thoughts might go is, okay, sure, we have our salvation. And I would just say that one of the things that's probably true for all of us is this, is that you know, we think, okay, salvation, that's great. And yet there's all these things I want in the world. And okay, I'm glad I've got salvation, but these other things are really important to me too. And, and our perspective of that is really skewed. It really is. Because one day when we see what salvation really entails, we're not going to see it in the proportions that we do today. We're going to see the overwhelming goodness and graciousness of salvation. And as the hymn says, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. And yet, there's something about that that we need to grasp also. You know, oftentimes we do pray for God. And one easy example, you know, for those who are single, oftentimes they're praying for marriage. And you're, you're praying that God would bring you together with, with someone that uh, you perhaps have a um, romantic connection with. And uh, many of us have heard, you know, God oftentimes will answer yes, no, or sometimes wait. But here's the reality. God prepared us for those good things. He designed us to receive his good and perfect gifts. And all of creation 
was made for us and we were made for creation. And so we are designed particularly to prosper in this creation that God has made. This world was made for us. And so when we are thinking of these things that are properly part of what we would enjoy because God has created us to desire and to enjoy them, what God is doing now, when he answers no, or when he answers wait, is not a denial of a good and right desire, but that God is simply preparing you and I to receive those things. And so, you know, my own life would be an example of that. Um, I'm very thankful that I have I'm now married to Irene and we have these four children. And yet, when I look back at my life, I realize there is no way that she and I could have the relationship that we have now unless I had been prepared in a certain way to be Irene's husband. And if any of you is curious, you can talk to me about it later. But I'll just say that there was a certain degree of immaturity in my life. And God had to work in my life in order to prepare me for her. And there are those, certainly, who God says no in this lifetime for marriage. And yet even in that case, God is preparing them to receive what marriage points to and the greater fulfillment of marriage one day. And so they are being prepared in order that that would be a greater blessing to them. And so with respect to our worship of God, everything good and the entirety of what is good is God himself. There is nothing that is good that is not God. And what, he, what has he said to us about himself? We are his and he is ours. And so with respect to Christian worship, when we come, when we give our sacrifices to God, there is nothing that we are giving them in exchange for, but rather in a different kind of relationship, God desires to pour himself out to us, and we are learning to respond to him. And so the the, the relationship, do you see this? The relationship in idolatry and the relationship that we have with God in Christian worship is entirely different. And that concept is central to our passage today. <clears throat> and the way that it's central, you, if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 10, <laughs> you'll see that in a the theme of this passage is the idea of unity. I want you to know, brothers, chapter 10, verse 1, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. What is that? What is that? Baptism and communion, right? All were baptized together into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Baptism, 
and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Do you see the two ordinances of the church right there in that passage? Now, this is in Old Testament Israel, but it is a picture. And we see now that in Old Testament Israel, what was given to them and the Exodus journey that they went on was done in part in order to instruct us. Certainly, it was a journey that Israel went on for their own blessing. But part of the reason for the journey that God brought Israel through was in order to foreshadow, to explain, to help us understand what we have in Jesus Christ. And if you look at the very next verse, you can see that. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So they were baptized into Moses. They ate the same spiritual food. They were sustained throughout their journey. We know how God rained manna down from the sky and provided for them from the rock. And out of the rock came the water that preserved them in the desert. And now we come back to that same theme that we have been seeing throughout these chapters in Corinthians. Verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And so you see the connection. That foreshadowing of baptism and communion, pointing to Christ who would come in the fullness of time and be offered as a sacrifice were all given as symbols in order to help us understand the spiritual reality in which we now live. And Paul directly points to that. And now he says, you better take a lesson from that because although all Israel was in Moses and they were all sustained by God through the desert, picturing communion with most of them, not some of them, not a few of them, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then Paul says, that is an example for you and I. And the reason that they're overthrown then comes in the next verse, verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instructions on whom the end of the ages has come. So do you see the connection? And these images are images of what? When everyone is baptized into Moses, and so for those of you who have gone through their baptism class, you guys know this passage very well because this is one of the central passages that we go over when we talk about baptism. One of the ideas of baptism is this idea of union. And so when we baptize someone in the water, what are we doing? We baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and, and the Spirit. And in lowering them into the water, we are giving them a picture 
A picture of what? We're, we're lowered into the water and we're raised up again, just as Christ died, was buried, and was raised again. And what we are showing in that picture of baptism is that we have identified with. We are in union with Christ in his death and his burial with a great blessing of participating, of sharing, of being union in union with Christ in his resurrection. And so there is that idea of identification, of being joined together. <clears throat> and then likewise, the picture of communion and how we are sustained on Christ. And then here is this, this dynamic that <clears throat> we have not to throw away our theology, but to understand the perspective from which each teaching comes. Because certainly in some passages, we have the idea of eternal security. If you are held in the hand of Jesus Christ, how many does he lose from his grasp? And the answer to that is no one. He does not lose a single one that has been entrusted to him. And yet, at the same time, from our perspective, and you remember, I don't know how effective this illustration was. I would ask, I think Marcella was sitting over there, and somebody had flipped a coin over here. Oh, no, he had flipped a coin at someone over here to ask or to guess what the, pro or to tell me what the probability was that the coin was heads. Now, from the perspective of the person who flips a coin over here, they know, right? They know if it's heads or tails, because they see it, they flipped it. And yet, from the perspective of the person over here, the chance of it being heads is 50%. Likewise here, there is the dynamic where Paul is saying, watch out, guard yourself, that you not be disqualified in terms of this relationship with God. And so here again, Paul turns to this warning. Do you not see the example from Old Testament Israel? Yes, they were all in Moses. And this idea of being baptized into Moses is the idea that they all shared in his fate. If you followed Moses, whatever happened to Moses happened to you. And so when Pharaoh trapped the Israelites by the Red Sea, what did God do? The sea parted and Moses crossed over on dry ground. And all Israel likewise followed Moses across the sea and were delivered from Pharaoh. And so in that sense, they all participated with Moses. And yet, they, many of them, chose not to be in that relationship with God. They returned to their idolatry and so were destroyed. 23,000 because of sexual immorality, grumbling and putting God to the test and being destroyed by serpents, grumbling against Moses and rebelling against him and being destroyed by the angel of death. And Paul tells us these then are an example to us. And what God 
is doing among all of us is that we are being formed together into a new community. And idolatry strikes at the heart of that work. And so in the fall, what happened is that we were all separated from one another. Sin divides and separates and sets at odds one person from another because our interests begin to run counter to each other. There are limited resources that we all want to have, and so we're in competition for them. But the new way of Jesus Christ and the future that God prepares us for is that we are now joined together as one body, seeking one another's interests and preferring each other over ourselves. And as the book of Philippians tells us, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, though in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And like him, we are not to seek our own interests, but also the interests of others. But what does idolatry do? Idolatry divides. Idolatry sets one person's interests against another person's interests. It puts us back into that environment and culture of competition, of bargaining, of transactions, rather than covenant. And so in the work of God to bring us into unity, this question about food, sacrifice to idols, and idolatry becomes very central. And so in chapter 8, Paul makes a point that, okay, you have a certain knowledge. And that knowledge is that behind the idol is nothing, right? You know, there's a stone there. And the pagans treat that stone as a god. But the stone is just a stone. But the other aspect of it is, as we now see in chapter 10, that behind every idol is, Paul says, a demon. Or actually, another way to put it, behind the idol, idol is idolatry another idol. We no longer worship gods of stone, of wood, of metal to get what we need, but we still have idols. And that's what Paul is pointing out that the Corinthians likewise had. And in asking the question, can we eat this meat that has been sacrificed to idols. And they were in a context where many people had participated in these pagan rituals. And so in choosing to take this meat, they knew if I go there, just trying to think of a good modern day kind of parallel. And so one way to look at it is alcohol and gambling. There are some people who really struggle with alcohol who really struggle with gambling. And um, one of the things that, uh, as Asians, some, some of us like to do, we like to play mahjong. And I remember when I went off to college and uh, some of my friends taught me how to play mahjong. I thought, oh, this is a great game. And it was you know, basically very similar to gin rummy, right? And, and I'm good at games like that because I have a good memory and I'm very, oh, anyway. 
<laughs> and then I went home. I, I, bought, I, I went to China, actually, at one point. I bought a mahjong set, and then I wanted to play with my family. My dad won't play. Why won't he play? Because in China, there have been so many people who have been destroyed by that game. They've been caught up in those gambling dens. And he's seen people throw their lives away over this kind of gambling. Now, if that was the kind of situation that we were at the church where there were people who were struggling with that problem, and if we said, well, you know, we know it's just a game, and we don't have to gamble money, it's no big deal. But when we also know that at the same time, if we are playing those games and those people who are struggling with that addiction see it, they may very well be tempted and reminded of that passion that they have for addiction that they have to gambling and thus be destroyed. And if we were to know that, and if we were to engage in that activity anyway, what are we showing? We're showing that we have a higher love for something else, our own rights, our own enjoyment. In other words, we're idolizing something. Do you see that? And so although the stone is no idol, although I would say intrinsically there isn't anything wrong with mahjong, but behind that there is an idolatry, a love for something else over God. What is idolatry? Um, very helpful book if you want to read up on it, Tim Keller, uh, Counterfeit Gods. But this is the way he defines idolatry in that book. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Now, if I'm engaging in some activity that I know will harm another brother and destroy that person's relationship with God or harm them in their walk with God, what am I doing? I'm working against the very salvation that God provides, right? Because salvation is that restoration of community. Salvation is not just, I don't have to go to hell. And if you think that, you have a very impoverished view of salvation. But salvation is the restoration of community, the restoration to set aside your rights in order to look out for the blessing and the welfare of your brothers and sisters. And so if you've set your own interests above the interests of others and engage in activities that you know can destroy another person's faith, in essence, what you have turned back to is idolatry. And if you're worshiping an idol, you're not worshiping God. And if you're worshiping an idol, you very well may be showing God you have no desire to be a part of a family. And so one of the things that I am very thankful for at PCC is the community that we have here. One of the things that we'll look at uh, and I hope that all of you will come back for our communication meeting because we'll be just looking back in part over a lot of the activities that happened this last year. And one of the strengths, and Irene and I felt this, when we visited this church almost four years ago, and we came in and we sat in with the cell groups and to the Bible studies, and in, in some cases, 
got into groups where there had been friendships which had been going on for decades, and we felt the warmth and how quickly people welcomed us in. And we've seen that continue on. And uh, one of the things I'm very thankful for, and I hope we guard against, is that the idea of, of, of you know, cliques and special groups within the groups. But what we found in our fellowship groups is that they're very warm and welcoming places, and that idea of community is very strong. And that, that community that we have here and that hopefully we can continue to strengthen and grow in is the idea that we will look out for one another and care for one another. And in that way, we fight against idolatry. And every ounce of strength that we can muster in our fight against sin and in our fight against idolatry, we will need. Because I will tell you, here is another reality. I've been serving in ministry for many, many years. And with idolatry, my record is very, very bad. So here, I'll give you a tidbit about legal practice. Uh, if you go to a lawyer and at some point uh, you ask them about, you know, like how well they've done, uh, whether it's like in the criminal courts or in my case, uh, patent law, um, as a patent lawyer, I could just say, oh yeah, I'm 100%. Every single time, if an vendor comes to me and I file a patent for them, if we follow it all the way through, no question, I can get you a patent. Well, part of that is, is that, uh, you know, I know also both for criminal lawyers uh, as well as intellectual property lawyers, what kind of cases do you take? If you can't win the case, you don't take it. Uh, and that's just good business, even as, in, you know, because even though we, we would charge people by the hour, we don't want an unhappy client. And so when we look at the case as a patent lawyer, I look, okay, is there something novel here that I can work with? And if there's something I know is new, I know I can get a patent. And if, if I can't, then I'll just tell the person, look, this really isn't worth it. And whatever protection you get would be really minimal. And so 100% as a patent attorney. In pastoral ministry, in getting into situations of counseling, and there's something that someone is idolizing some kind of addiction, some kind of desire that they have, some kind of lust that they have. I've lost every single time. I'm 0%, so it's the exact opposite, and it's kind of awful, except that it's always that way. And the only time this power can be broken is when God comes in and convicts a heart and transforms them. And yet, at the same time, the way that God works, just as you see here in chapter 10, what is it that God does in salvation? He forms community. And so as a community, you know, here's the thing. Uh, think about one of your friends. Okay, think about your, your best friend. Okay, do you know what that person's idol is? You probably do, right? I mean, if you spend enough time with somebody, you know the kind of things that kind of they struggle with that are, are, are the things that capture their heart. Do you challenge them on it? And my guess is probably Because what you've realized over time, you know, every one of us has had friends, right? You know, like uh, easy example, someone's in a bad relationship and you know this girl shouldn't be dating this guy. How rewarding is it to tell her that? It's not, right? I mean, you're, unless the person's already in the position where they're like sick of the relationship, you're running into trouble when you do that. Or if someone has an addiction, there's something they love to take alcohol, 
and you know someone struggles with alcohol. What's, what's, the, what's the first thing that they try to do in alcoholic, Alcoholics Anonymous? My name is Hans, and I'm, I'm an alcoholic, right? Get the person to admit it. And, and when do they come to the point where they'll admit it? When they're so desperate because there's something even greater that they're fearing they're going to lose. But as long as they can possibly defend it, they will hang on to the illusion that it's just another drink. Our idolatries are so powerful. And what you'll see that is in the world, the way that the world overcomes these idolatries is they will set up a bigger idol against it. And so, for example, the alcoholic. When can some alcoholics quit? When they come to the point they know they're going to lose their marriage and they know they're going to lose their family. And so here's a bigger idol. If I don't kick this habit, I'm going to lose this other thing I love even more. And even family can be an idol if we set it above God. Again, Keller's definition, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give, and certainly relationships, even a husband-wife relationship. In fact, I would say that's one of the most dangerous idolatries because it is one of the greatest goods. And when we have such strong desires and there is something that is so good, that is a thing that can take the place of God. Now, I want to close this morning with an encouragement. How does our section here in chapter 10 end? We read in verse 22 this, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? What is this verse telling us? God will not share his place with an idol. Now, what do you have that God needs? Let me take Elder Gordon here, very talented man. God needs Gordon. I mean, he can't, I mean, life uh, existence would be meaningless unless he had Elder Gordon, right? No, he has no need for Elder Gordon. <laughs> There's nothing that Gordon can give him that God can't do himself much better, perfectly. Why is God jealous over Elder Gordon? He loves him. God loves Gordon. God loves you. God loves me with an infinite and perfect love. And he knows that if you worship these other idols, they will destroy you. The idols do not love you. They'll only consume you. And he wants nothing but the best for you. And you are precious to him. He sent his son to die an agonizing death on the cross in order to save you. He loves you and he is jealous over you. That's both a great joy. You are coming to a God, not a harsh God, not a legalistic God but a God who desires relationship. The laws are there, certainly. Just as you give a young child rules for their own protection, 
You're trying to guide them. You're helping them come to wisdom. And in the end, that's what the laws of God come to, to guide you to him, to see his goodness, to know your dependence upon him and his desire to help you. And so when we think about this battle against idolatry, yes, it's a terrible battle. What do we need? Number one, we need community. And we need to know God loves you and he's jealous over you and he will help you fight those until the battle is won. And the victory, even against this terrible opponent, is certain and it is sure. And so we'll finish with a few, and this is from Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, a few helpful indicators as I read these, just think, what are some things that fit these categories? What might some of my idols be? A good way to ask your friends. Do you know what my struggle is? What is it that I'm addicted to? And how can I fight against them? You can use accountability with a good friend. You can pray. You can come to the Lord who loves you and is jealous over you. And so here are a few of the things, and we'll just close as I read some of these. Uh, think about what it might be that you are looking to that can give you or in order to get what only God can give you. And so one thing, what do you daydream about? What are the things that you hope for? If the genie from Aladdin's lamp came and said, three wishes, whatever you want, what would you wish for? And that might help you know what your idols are. To what do you give your time? What do you spend your free time on? Or put it another way. What kind of activities is it that you'd be willing to skip your devotions and prayerful? Where do you spend your money? What is it that you devote your resources to? What is it that you strive to get with what God has given you? Another indicator. What kind of unanswered prayers make you doubt the goodness of God when you pray for something and if God says no, what are those things that would make you doubt his goodwill towards you? What are your most important relationships? Are there friendships or relationships that you pursue that lead you away from God? Are there relationships, are there friendships that you desire more than you desire God? What would you be most afraid of losing? What what kind of things make you anxious? And so what kind of things do you not trust God about? Last one, maybe kind of a fun one. Suppose you're given a time machine. So a thought experiment. If you had a time machine, you could go back in your life and you could change something. What would you change? So... As we think about these things, the war against idols in our life is a challenging, it's a terrible fight. And yet at the same time, we know this is a fight that we will win in the Lord. And yet from our perspective, you had better beware. Examine your life, discipline yourself, that you not be disqualified on the day of Christ. Let's close in prayer.
Lord, I pray for myself, first of all. I pray for this congregation, this family of ours. Help us to pursue our relationship with you and help us see in light of your truth and your goodness the kind of things that we have idolized in our lives, the kind of things that lead us away from a closer relationship with you. And we know that while we are on this earth, that struggle will never be finished. If the Apostle Paul fought to discipline himself, we no doubt have many things we need to discipline and struggle against in our lives. And yet, Lord, I pray that this church as a community would strengthen one another and help one another and encourage one another that in our fight against sin, we would overcome to your glory and to the praise of your name. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We're blessed this morning. Uh, we'll continue to hear from some of uh, those who have joined us and to hear their testimonies. You can see Kyle right back there. And it's been a pleasure for all of us in RISE as we've gotten to know Kyle over this last year. And hopefully all the rest of you can get to know him and know how to pray for him. And so, Kyle. And I also go to the Cantonese cell group. Um, so I also know some people in PC. Um, and um, my journey um, through faith, um, it's a really long one. So I'm trying to be um, respectful of time here. I'm trying to um, um, get to the point, basically. So um, I went to a Christian high school um, in Hong Kong. I'm originally from Hong Kong. Um, and it was during that time that um, uh, I chose to come to Christ, but for the wrong reasons. Uh, we were talking about idolatry. At the time, I was actually um, treating academic success as my idol. And the way that I um, see God is basically like the gods in the temple, the pagan temples. I was praying to God, okay, God, please help me through my academic career, which is wrong. <laughs> Um, but nonetheless, um, that was the occasion that I got into um, um, Christianity. That was my kind of entry ticket to um, um, the Lord. Um, although with the wrong reasons, um, um, and actually it was because of the wrong reasons, I left, left church very quickly, um, unfortunately. Um, but God has been very faithful to me. God has lots of patience for me. Um, during college, I stopped going to church. During my master's, I stopped going to church. And it wasn't until my fourth year in my PhD journey, um, and the stress of everything was just so enormous that um, I would say three angels um, from Christ um, he sent three angels to be three very good friends who um, are very faithful Christians. At the same time, shared the gospel with me. And I was like, hmm, this must be something interesting going on. Uh, probably it's, it's God telling me, hey, it's time to come back. And by the way, at that time, 
it has already been eight years since I've left church. And I was like, God, will you be willing to accept me even though like I was so arrogant, I treated you almost like an idol, almost like, a, like that stone statue in the temple. I almost treated you like that. And God said, just come back. And so I did. I went back to church um, in 2022, um, and this time on a much better foundation, much better footing, understanding what uh, the faith really is. The faith is really about we sinned against God, that uh, we really need Christ. Um, but that has not sealed the deal yet. The, 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 really the occasion that got me like really, really firmly back to church, it was actually my mom. Um, so at that time, um, my, mom was not a, my mom was not a Christian. I actually shared the gospel with her, but like very occasionally, like it's not, something that I like took a really long time and um, kind of like share with her um, like for long. Um, and unfortunately she was diagnosed with terminal stage lung cancer um, in 2020. Um, and still she fought very bravely. Um, and it was during her struggles, she asked me, um, so what would God say about this? Um, and back then, I actually did not have a clear answer. I was still out of the church uh, because it was 2020. I came back in 2022. Um, and it was that moment that really made me think what uh, Christianity means to me, what, what salvation means. Because when you, like, she knows that she doesn't have a lot of time left on the earth. And that is the moment that she starts thinking about these things. And that also challenged me. That also pushed me to think, um, is this still okay? Like this kind of like lukewarm relationship with God, is this still okay? And no, it is not okay. So I took that occasion and I went back to church. And then I start sharing the gospel more like aggressively, I guess, uh, with mom. And... She did come to faith, um, to Christ. She was unfortunately unable to baptize because of her health situation, but um, she passed away in, in 2022, actually. Um, but the, all the ceremony, the burial, it, it was all done like according to the um, Christian tradition. So knowing that, um, it gives me a, a, a lot of peace. A lot of people ask me, like, Kyle, like, how, how can you deal with all this grief? Like, but it seems like you're okay. Like, you didn't cry. Well, they didn't see me cry. Um, but, and I guess it was because of the peace from God, the peace from Christ, knowing that one day uh, with salvation, we were all going to meet each other again in heaven. That really, really uh, um, made me think about what it means to be saved and what is the good thing about being saved and what what is the the end goal like after after this like our our lives on earth is very very short um she was only i think 54 when she passed so it's it's actually a very short life unfortunately but still knowing that one day we will meet each other in heaven that gave me a lot of peace so 
Um, I'm going to close very quickly with um, a verse from the Philippines about peace that I really like. Um, so Philippians 4, verse six, verses 6 to 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. And I think the reason why I could go through all this grief, that I'm still standing before you, that I'm still, you know, presentable, it is because of this peace that is beyond our human understanding. And, and this actually helped me a lot um, as I go through my life struggles later on. I'm dealing with immigration stuff. I'm dealing with my job, all kinds of like um, daily challenges. Still, I know that as I pray, as I align my goals with God's goals for me, um, this peace that surpasses all human understanding uh, will be with me. And this is the end of my testimony. Thank you. Let's take a moment to uh, pray for Kyle. Father God, we thank you for this brother who you have called in graciousness back to yourself, Lord. And we pray that you would help him to continue to grow in you that he would see your goodness, that he would grow in his maturity and his wisdom. And we thank you also, Lord, for the work that you did through him and the mercy shown to his mother. And we're thankful that the important baptism, the baptism into Christ Jesus, is one that she didn't receive. And that the assurance that we can have as Christians to be united again together in your son. Thank you for this brother, and we pray that you would continue to watch over him. He has a lot of challenges in his journey ahead, and we pray that we could be a good community to him as a church as he faces these, as he goes through uh, the immigration process and other things, Lord. We pray that you would help him to walk faithfully with you, and we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Let me get the table going.